Welcome to One to One, the conversational marketing podcast dedicated to helping modern marketing teams succeed in a messaging first and privacy first world. In each episode, we'll interview a marketer who is winning with conversational marketing to distill best practices, lessons learned, and actionable takeaways. Here's your host, Benji Baer, VP of Marketing at Spectrum. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to One to One, the conversational marketing podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Hannah Craig, co-founder and director at Pivotal Consulting, Hannah, thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, it's lovely to be here, Ben. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. I know we had a chance to catch up for a few minutes earlier the other day, and I think there's a lot of really interesting topics that our audience is going to be very excited to hear your perspective on. So uh, yeah, I'd love to start with just, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and how you ended up in your current role as a co-founder of Pivotal Consulting. Sure thing. So I guess I'm now like a generalist marketer, but I've got a really strong digital heritage. I started in digital agencies back when digital agencies were working on Bebo and MSM Messenger, and that's all there was, which probably half this listenership might might not even (laughs) remember. And working on government communications in the UK, so telling people to stop smoking and drink less and do their tax returns and things like that. And then I've been doing that for a long time. I sort of through that ended up running quite a lot of social media pages for actually for armed forces recruitment and things like that. And then I realized then I sort of did that more broadly for other brands. And then I realized that if I wanted to do social media sort of really, really well, which is what I was in at the time, I'd need to be doing it for a brand. So I moved to ASOS, which is like the OG fast fashion e-commerce retailer here in the UK and set up their social media team there. And then from that, I've probably started to do every job in the marketing department. I was there for a really long time. So that's in performance marketing, in brand marketing, in like ran the CRM team through when we had GDPR legislation coming in in the UK and Europe, which was an absolute nightmare. And then ever since then, I've sort of been in retail. So after I left ASOS, I worked for some startups and scale-ups. I've also worked more in sort of attainable luxury rather than just fast fashion. So also Reese, which is another sort of big establishment UK fashion brand. And then also with sort of other beauty and interiors brands, but always really in those kind of aesthetic industries. And then, as you said, I sort of recently set up Pivotal Pivotal Consulting, I mean, literally like four weeks ago. And I guess it's sort of ultimately to grow the brands that we think our planet needs in the future. I could probably tell you or probably work out as a marketer how many, you know, items of clothing I've sold that have only been worn once and are now in landfill somewhere. And I think we really want to work with those impacts reducing brands in those industries and sort of define what's desirable for the next 10 years. So that, yeah, it's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's, uh, you've clearly had a lot of experience, as you said, in like the fashion, attainable luxury, like apparel industries. I think those are, you know, we have definitely a lot of listeners that work in those industries as well. So I think your insights are going to be very interesting. And I'm sure that, I guess it's interesting to see your shift over towards something more sustainable or the desire to make that shift because I'm sure, yeah, the footprint of the fashion industries isn't always an amazing one, but as like with most industries, and I think that's also the shifting consumer interest in also buying from brands that are sustainable and that do kind of fit with their values is something that that I'm sure means that you're in an industry that will be growing rapidly as well. 
I mean, you mentioned working for ASOS, the OG fast fashion retailer in the UK. Uh, they're obviously massive, large product catalog and you know, all these different roles that you worked in. I'm sure that gives you a very good understanding at this point of what the state of digital marketing is today. You know, you touched on GDPR, the fun of consent management and all of that stuff. Can you maybe just quickly summarize how you see the market and kind of what the industry feels like to you today? Yeah, I actually think digital marketing is like the most volatile and potentially the most exciting. It's been, I don't know, maybe for a decade. Like, I feel like for a lot of the last 10 years, particularly when I've been doing consulting, but even when I've been in-house, I've been probably, you know, the mainstays of those media plans and partners have been Google and now Meta, but, you know, either the Facebook or Instagram platforms. And probably that duopoly is maybe being like, challenged for the first time in a really long time like everyone's obviously talking about tiktok at the moment but i think that you know there's also like lots more interesting happening in affiliates and there's a lot more interesting stuff happening with content partnerships and there's also just this idea that everything is sort of digital now so like i don't know podcasts like are they just radio but digital like broadcast video on demand you know that it just feels like actually like there's just so much more that you can be doing in the space now than maybe there has been sort of prior certainly prior to 2019 the other thing obviously is like everything sort of moving to a cookie-less world I actually think it's really good for the digital marketing community like I think last click has made us all a bit lazy I was on a sort of training program with Google a little while ago and it was specifically about YouTube and there was someone, I mean, this was earlier this year, literally someone from YouTube saying, and I don't know if you know, but not all of YouTube's value is recognized in last click. It's like, oh goodness, like no way. Like the rest of us have been worried about that for the last decade, Google, but like nice of you to have caught up. So I think that's actually like, it just feels like we can be doing better plans. We can be doing better creative, like we can be doing better measurement. But there's also a lot of unknowns, but I, like definitely the most exciting that's been, I think, five or 10 years. Yeah, I actually couldn't agree more. I think the laziness aspect is exactly what it is. It was such a black box. And I mean, it continues to be, but it was much worse for a long time. And that over-reliance on the algorithm, on just basic last-click conversion tracking and attribution and optimization has really made digital marketing very accessible to a lot of people, but also yeah. has made it much less powerful when for the, the people that really are in the industry and want to do some of the more complex either attribution or just really understanding the full customer journey. And I think you touched on the digitization of some of those things like podcasts or, you know, things that are not necessarily new, but that are being brought into a digital mix in a way that's actually very exciting and I think poses challenges, but also a lot of really exciting opportunities uh, for digital marketers. I mean, I think you touched on the loss of cookies a little bit and the data aspects. You know, I think one thing we talk about on this podcast a lot is one-to-one -one personalization and understanding how brands activate their data or what types of customer experiences uh, they provide. Can you talk to me a little bit about what one-to-one -one personalization means to you, uh, particularly from like your experience in the fashion and apparel industries and maybe some of the key challenges that you've encountered in your roles? Yeah, sure. So I think when we talked about this before, my immediate interpretation of that is that it's sort of individual conversations or messages with every single customer or potential customer, which I've got a bit of an allergic reaction to. Like I've never seen it deployed particularly elegantly or seen it deliver a return for what you have to put in to make that work even kind of a bit 
well. <laughs> so for me, I think particularly in apparel, like when you think about it in that context, once you get past, is this person shopping for men's, women's or children's clothing? Is this person a student or not a student? Is this person new to my brand or, you know, like have they bought from my brand before? Like once you've done those parameters, like everything else sort of fades into insignificance. That's like, that's definitely been my experience. I sat on the personalization steering committee at ASOS for a really long time. And I have closed down many like other works, similar work streams in my time. I think the most like the example that went round felt like we're all talking about for two years was particularly like, you can tell, you know, like, Jill in Manchester that it's raining and she should buy a coat and you just think that's just like not that's not like inspiration no like apparel marketing and Jill knows it's raining and if she hasn't got a coat on she's wet already like I don't know so I think I mean you can tell I sort of like have never found that a particularly like compelling idea for one-to-one personalization I do think there's something in like how you personalize service for brands in this category and particularly for more like premium brands or more experience-based brands and like maybe that's where the opportunity is but I think I'm still a little bit skeptical about whether everything is in place to deliver that that side really well and I think you still have to I don't know I think we're in that like I'm in the trough of disillusionment in that quite <laughs> cycle of one-to-one messaging at the moment <laughs> Yeah, I love I love that uh, analogy. I think, you know, we'd spoke about this a bit before, but I think that's what I was also excited to talk about today is having seen that hype cycle kind of boom and bust for chatbots or one-to-one personalization. And now there are kind of new channels and new tech emerging. Uh, so maybe there are some new opportunities there. But before we dive into that, I'd, you know, I'd love for you to unpack a little bit what you said about one-to-one service personalization versus just kind of product recommendations and things like that, because I agree with you. I think there are very quick limits as far as kind of what you can do on just fashion recommendations, right? And you mentioned inspiration and how that's such a key component to it, right? You might not want to offer a coat to someone when it's already raining outside, but you might want to inspire them based on your new collections, or you might want to inspire them based on an understanding of like what types of things that you know they've bought before, or you know that they like, or, you know, how does that work for you? What do you see as the value in service personalization? And why do you think it's a more interesting place to be focused on? So I think one of the things I definitely know, and I've probably got slight bias because I've worked generally either in like pure play e-commerce or in brands where they're like trying to deliver huge amounts of digital transformation. So it's always been huge emphasis. But I think we really see, particularly in a UK customer, but true across Europe and the US when I've worked there as well, that like self-serve problem solving is actually most of the time what people want. So like if they need some kind of service from you, like they want to know about returns or they've got a styling question or a size or they don't necessarily I know there's this idea that everyone's like nostalgic when they could call someone but like not that many people actually want to do that like they do want an easy way to deal with that and certainly when you get sort of self-serve or automated service propositions right customers really like them so there's definitely like a service layer and I think from the apparel industry if you think about what really great sales assistants do in luxury stores where you know they've got they're on speed dial for all of their clients and they'll I don't know fly them out the handbag they need when they're going to dinner in Milan or you know and that kind of thing like there is an opportunity I think to make that like feel of level of sort of service and sort of customer care and like VIP status 
sort of bring that a bit more mass market like that for me is where the like opportunity would be in the apparel industry i think because i mean to your point we talked about this a bit last time on sort of recommendations and sort of thinking about things from that side in apparel and that just a product level it's just not I just can't imagine how automation delivers that. Whereas at a service level, I can really see how you can make your digital experience completely something else. And then if you take that further into, and we're definitely getting to the limits of my understanding, but like of like what sort of the metaverse is going to mean for fashion in the future, that is going to involve more interaction and you are going to have to offer a digital service that you do not have to offer today. Yeah, I think especially I really like some of the examples you mentioned on the service level as well, and also not seeing it as, I think people sometimes conflate service with customer service. And obviously what you're talking about is customer care and like the ability to address customers, like that self-serve aspect when they do have return questions, kind of order questions. But you also touched on the styling element and that the gap that exists maybe in the digital space right now sometimes, where that's the opportunity that you can bring that in-store concierge, that assistant, that style assistant into the digital realm. And that can actually have a very positive impact on customer experience, but also on the ability to sell more products, right? Or to, to actually inspire people in the right ways to increase order volume. So I think that's something that I think is really interesting with this space as well in this one-to-one space. Um, and you, you definitely obviously see that opportunity. I think, you know, you mentioned that recommendation algorithms are notoriously hard to drive repeat sales. And I think I'd love to understand based on your experience, like why do you think automation is harder in the category? Like, did you encounter specific challenges at ASOS? I mean, ASOS obviously has a massive products catalog. So you would think there's a lot of opportunity for kind of cross-sell and upsell, but I'm sure that there were also a lot of logistical issues uh, that came with that. Can you talk a bit about your experience? Yeah, I can. I think that the other example I think is really good here is Amazon, where, you know, Amazon dominates sort of an awful lot of online retail everywhere. And I think certainly a couple of years ago, like nine out of their top 10 worst performing brands were all apparel brands when they published their own label report. And it is, it's not posed the threat, I think, that lots of us who worked for traditional fashion brands thought it would, you know, like, I remember a bit working in sort of 2014, 2015 and all being really worried that Amazon was just going to like wipe us all out. And I think that comes down to the same thing is that like what makes the parameters by which you like buy another book are not the same as the parameters by which you buy fashion. And I say that like I love like trashy crime thrillers and absolutely I finished one trashy crime thriller. Someone can recommend me another one and I 100% will want to read it. I think I have probably have ended up down a bit of a wormhole now and that's probably all I read. But like I do want quite often more of the same. And I think that's true across it's the same in baby wipes. You know, like I, I don't need a lot of novelty. I think there are three big limitations, recommendations in apparel. I think like one of the first ones is just like, just because you know something about what someone's bought, like it can be quite hard to work out what's next. So the example I give this when I was working on recommendations at ASOS is I had just bought like a mini crossbody yellow, bright yellow handbag. Like I don't need another one. I don't need one in green. I don't need one in blue. But it's hard to know what I do need to go with that from sort of a, like how do you codify that into something that also aligns with my taste? So I think it's just like, that is just, I think, just a much harder brief if you like for a development team i think the like second things is around sort of novelty and future trends like like fashion is driven by like novelty and what makes a great 
buyer is someone who can say like people are going to want that like they don't know they want that yet mm-hmm. but they're going to want that and again like how do you tell never mind like a team of people who are writing an algorithm that's what people need people are going to need the thing that we don't know they need yet and then how do those people tell an algorithm that that will like that again for me is that is incredibly hard to do and then i think the last thing if i'm honest is just sort of bias and developers like the developer community worldwide is not hugely diverse although there are lots of like amazing places making great strides and i think actually that just makes it hard to like what you're ultimately doing in a recommendation for a pal is trying to codify nuances and personal taste and if you've only got a certain amount of people's taste accounted for also notoriously the people led by mark zuckerberg who wear a gray t-shirt and blue jeans to work every single day of their lives because they can't think about fashion in the morning like how do they accommodate the fact like i never buy anything above the knee because they're on my knees or like you know someone i know will like never ever ever wear skinny jeans being able to deliver that at a personal level being able to interpret that is really again really hard but also if you're the user of that if you're the person receiving the results from that those things are really obvious to you so I think like that kind of dissonance is so they sort of feel like the real real big areas that are hard yeah oh there's so many interesting things to go into there I think We'll come back to the bias in the algorithm aspect, because I think that's something that is I'd love to hear more of your perspective on, uh, given your experience in the industry. Before that, I think touching on the limits of product recommendations and just like you bought this, therefore you might want this in similar color, in similar size and the limits. And, you know, Amazon, the ultimate book recommendation algorithm, like failing to do that in fashion, I think based on your description, it makes perfect sense that that would be a failure. I think where it maybe is interesting going forward is to touch more on that inspirational service mm. side as well. So I'd love to understand, do you see an opportunity there in the sense of, okay, it might not be that it's the algorithm is about recommending the exact product based on your previous purchase history, but that it's more about enabling self-service and enabling inspiration, right? So if you can find ways to interact with consumers more in that, personal style assistant way where it's more about hey like let's explore the new collections that are coming out let's like what do you think of these five things which one do you like more in terms of style like let's show rather than specific products maybe show lines or show things that help them understand and like navigate what is taste and like what is taste right now and how is that evolving do you see value in that over the just like pure product recommendation approach yeah i definitely do and i actually think like being able to inject novelty and how you do that and again that i'm not a developer i'm also not even a like product marketing specialist this is again quite a little limits of my understanding but mm-hmm. i think there's something quite interesting about thinking like how do you inject novelty in a way that makes sense and i think the two like areas you really see so one of the really interesting things i think people see a lot when you let google have control over your product feeds when you're doing like shopping ads or mm-hmm. ppc ads what you tend to find is like what you tend to see in fashion quite a lot is unless you give it guidance, it sort of biases towards product that's been on site for longer because it knows more about it. And you sort of have to, if you work in fashion, you sort of have to train it that it has to look at new stuff because actually new stuff's really important for like sales and fashion. So like that's one of the things where you sort of see it sort of in, I think it's sort of a bit embedded in algorithms that they kind of like 
where there's information more than they like novelty. And I think that's an opportunity is like, how do you override that? How do you bring new collections or get customer feedback on new collections kind of into that? And that could Mm -hmm. be really valuable. It could be ways of showcasing things or like finding things, particularly if you're somewhere like ASOS Ramson that has, you know, a gazillion like products, finding things that might not get surfaced otherwise that could actually be like real winners for you like it should be something that could be a competitive advantage the other place you really see it is also just in like not bothering your customers there's an amazing article on the atlantic from earlier this year about i think it's called something like fashion has abandoned human taste and it's about the fact that like because so much fashion is designed now using sort of automation and sort of these kind of principles of like what's worked previously there are like trends that outlast even like regular people's desires for them because they sort of persist weirdly in algorithm i think again there's something quite interesting in learning like not only how do we inject new things and get customer feedback on that but like how do we understand the signals of when customers are bored of things or everything i think that's what people talk about one of the reasons tiktok's been so successful is it looks at what people don't like as well as what they do like whereas historically facebook has looked a lot more at what people sort of respond positively to again we're probably very much at the limits of all my understanding about <laughs> algorithms no i think there's some really interesting stuff in there as well like the injecting novelty, like you said right the algorithm biases what it knows and it biases towards information and so i think that point about product catalogs in fashion and the desire of the algorithm to go towards, okay, it knows it's had more clicks into this previous category into these particular products, and it can crawl more metadata for those products on your site because they've just Mm -hmm. been there for longer. Like indexability is such an important part of that whole thing. And so it's completely understandable on some level that the algorithms do that. But you're right. I think from a fashion perspective, what is interesting is injecting that novelty. I mean, I think if I think about some of the customers that we have at Spectrum, it's what they do is probably more on the curation element, right? Like they Mm. use this kind of like automation, one-to-one messaging as the medium, but they're still very much kind of marketers and tastemakers that are guiding that and it's not purely algorithm based because it runs into the limits that you're talking about right and you do want to enable that level of curation and then like the feedback process both positive and negative i think the negative being a very important one that's often overlooked as well right so i think yeah there's there's ways to get around that a bit but i think that's completely fair i mean i'd love to do you have any other thoughts on how kind of bias and recommendation algorithms plays out in the industry like what are kind of the biggest issues do you feel like it i know you've touched on how it impacts the development of kind of like novel trends and that Mm. sometimes it even outlasts what consumers want is there any other ways that you see that affecting the ability of fashion brands to kind of connect with consumers maybe a little bit i mean i think you've sort of got particularly when you're talking about this specific area between like sort of fashion and technology or like sort of digital infrastructure I guess you've got the double of like fashion can be quite an exclusive sort of privileged industry and technology can be the same so I sort of think you end up with like the center of that Venn diagram where maybe you know there's not a huge amount of inspiration always being drawn from outside of that whereas if you think about the design process and fashion you know buyers still are like traveling all over the world and going to different shows and so I think that sometimes it can feel a little bit insular and I I don't necessarily know how that manifests but that I feel like can only manifest in something that like doesn't really deliver on the sort of true excitement of fashion 
particularly. So I think that's maybe one of the places you see it. I but I do think maybe it just sort of comes out in things being a little bit more boring than they should be. I think that would be my my number one criticism of a lot of automation in fashion, is mm-hmm. it like it can make things a little bit boring and I think there's loads of if you take it outside of thinking about those specific industries like one of the things we know sort of generally is loads of research so if your teams lack diversity they're less creative and I think it's probably what you need when you're trying to develop an algorithm that can like inspire people within like the apparel industry you probably need a lot of creativity I feel like it's one of those areas like both industries both fashion and sort of the tech industry are really trying to address those issues at the moment so i mean hopefully we'll see a bit more ingenuity maybe in the future yeah i think there's plenty of space for innovation it's funny you mentioned the venn diagram of fashion and engineers in my, when you said that in my head i'm like i don't know if there is an overlap in my head i'm sure there is one but to me it was just two circles in different places um <laughs> But I think, yeah, what you touched on as well is maybe it's taking the fashion part out of fashion and apparel and just making it apparel because there's no longer that creativity. There isn't, as you said, the innovation. There's no longer the the taste driving from curators, from people who spend their whole lives trying to understand human taste and like the next trends. So I think that's it's a very, very good point that is something the industry has to address. I think, as I mentioned, there are some opportunities there in the way that we think about automation, maybe not just purely from an algorithmic standpoint, but just from like the communication standpoint and how the messages get delivered. But I think, yeah, some very, very interesting things to look out for. You mentioned also about like the platforms and the one-to-one messaging and all of that. And I actually think one of the huge opportunities here is people love looking at and talking about fashion. So in Mm -hmm. terms of getting feedback from like actual people, like if you work at a fashion brand, people will browse your website not everybody, but for 20 minutes, like they've no intention of buying. They just want to look at, like, you know, the same way they'll browse Instagram or TikTok or watch a YouTube video or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, I mean, I started my career trying to get people to stop smoking. That is very hard work. Like nobody wants to talk to you about that. People want to talk to you about handbags or trainers or whatever. So there's lots of opportunity in terms of yeah. like it is an industry people will want to talk back to you in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a fun process, right? I think like if you think about how you would train something, right? And on the website, I know TikTok has gotten very, if part of that algorithm is also kind of dwell time on video. I mean, I think that's part of most algorithms these days, but like dwell time on content, on posts, on videos as an indicator of interest, even if someone doesn't like the post mm-hmm. or anything like that. I can imagine fashion e-commerce, like major ones are looking at dwell time on product pages as an indicator of interest in that product. But it's very, very difficult to operationalize. And I think as you mentioned, messaging, like that opportunity to just show people and be like, do you love this? Do you hate this? You know, like, that's even if you went as basic as like the Tinder approach and just like swipe left or right on this, like there's so much feedback you can get and understand someone's personal taste that I think, yeah, it's a very interesting space to be in. I mean, having said that, I think you have mentioned to me before as well that apparel recommendations often kind of just default to the best sellers and trends. So like that flattening of ingenuity of creativity Do you see value in kind of personalizing the messaging? And, you know, you've talked a little bit about messaging apps, but like, are there any other channels that you're excited about where you kind of see a lot of opportunity to do something different here? I think probably the other place, which again, sort of almost brings me back to that point around service, is in better understanding so that you can do things like reduce returns and sort of reduce wastage and 
there's loads of really interesting businesses now there's one in the uk called harpers who do like a concierge service for online brands so they'll like bring to your door the items that you might want to try on like a catch-all version of that so again mm-hmm. like not every brand can offer that to every person but like doing that at a kind of level but again for me that's still about service i think the other thing that's interesting which also plays on the other point we we're talking about is i also don't think in fashion like a customer telling you they don't like something it's not necessarily a negative interaction from a customer's point of view. It's probably still better than no reaction, if you see what I mean. Like, it doesn't mean they didn't enjoy it um, and that you can't learn from it in the future. But I definitely, that for me, again, it just comes back to like, and that might include bestsellers. And you probably always, you know, if you're going to show someone sweet products, yes, you should probably include some bestsellers. They're bestsellers for a reason. But I think it's about like, what's at the fringes. I think the other thing is, the thing about fashion is like what you see is not what you buy. So there was, I'm going to both get the actual numbers of this wrong and I can't remember <laughs> who, which brand this was for, but the principle is true. So there was a point in time where I was working on a brand and if someone searched black dress and went in Google, went onto this brand, made a transaction, only 40% of those transactions would be either black or a dress. And it, it's also true, like most even when I was at ATOS, we used to show lots of pictures of, like pink furry coats and like wild, like printed trousers. And most of what people buy is like blue jeans and white t-shirts. So it's not even to say that the bestseller isn't what they're going to buy, but I think it's also not only do people not buy what they say they're going to buy, they don't buy it because you showed them it. And I think it's again just like what's novel, like what's inspirational. Mm-hmm. Like even if I don't want to buy a pink furry coat, I kind of want you to show it to me. Because like, then maybe I want to buy the blue jeans because like, maybe, maybe I'm edging towards a pink furry coat. Or so so th- for me, it's still like, how do you like use it to be inspirational? Yeah, I think that's such an important point when, when it comes to, to fashion, because it almost simulates being back in the store, right? You want to like flick through yeah. everything on the rack yeah. and be like, no, don't want that. Don't want that. Don't want that. Like, yes, this is, this feels like me. And even if your reaction of this feels like me is the reaction that 80% of other people had, it doesn't matter. Like you, yeah. you are validated in your choice by the mere action of actually going through and browsing things. And so it, it totally makes sense that in the digital world, even if those are not the highest converting products that they should still show because it helps to validate the choice. And it it also gives that kind of feeling of, okay, I'm shopping, like I'm exploring, yeah. I'm understanding what is taste and that's something that I think I'm sure people could program some part of that into an algorithm, but it, it it also in the way that we traditionally think of kind of recommendation algorithms, it does run against the grain of yeah. what they're designed to do. So I think that's yeah, it's a very interesting challenge to be thinking about. I mean, I think given those challenges, some of the things we've talked about, I think what are the top three kind of pieces of advice you give marketers broadly or in this space that are kind of looking to better meet consumer demand or like innovate in the kind of fashion creative recommendations okay well i'm gonna do a left brain a wild right brain and a (laughs) wild card for my top three so my first one is like i do really i mean i maybe have not sounded like it for the past 30 minutes i do really believe in like analytics and data did a science degree there was a point in my life where i thought i was going to be a physicist i mean i did not have a big enough brain to do that but like i really do believe in looking what the data is telling you but i do think you have to add common sense to that like i do really think that thing around just like an algorithm we're biased towards where the information is 
like just because you know that thing doesn't mean it's the only thing you can know so I really would Mm -hmm. say like look at the information you've got and then like add your own common sense to that like that's kind of where I think like digital technology and humans are good it's like we're actually good at different things aren't we isn't it like computers are really good at long division and we're really good at making tea and we like (laughs) we're not like it's not very true the other way around like like add what you know to what it is telling you rather than just taking what you're being told so i think that's number one i don't know i summarize that as like analytics and common sense use both Mm. i think the second thing i'd say is like really love your creative counterparts i mean i'm like a really i'm quite a traditional marketer like i am not a creative if you like I don't and I've worked with creative agencies and I've worked with in-house creatives you know and I just really think when you both work together like when those two kind of disciplines or teams whether that you're in the same business or not really work together like you always just get more than the sum of your parts so like I really would say like embrace all your you know social creatives and creative directors and someone who wants to talk to you for 15 minutes about why they like this fabric and like what inspired them like I really do think like that does even if you can't directly apply it into your marketing absorbing that is a really like it can really elevate what you're doing and like give you new ways of thinking about things and I think like if you work in the fashion industry or you know sort of other aesthetic industries like we're lucky there's lots of really creative people in those industries mm-hmm. I also think marketing is a very creative discipline it's just we're not called creatives it's different but like so I'd say really love your creative counterparts and then my third one is probably a little bit sort of more worthy and harking back I guess to like the change I've made in my career recently but I would also really say like take responsibility for what you're making desirable think about when you are showing people product you are and you're inspiring them with that product like you are shaping like what their tastes are and what they're going to buy in the future and you can include more responsibly made products in that and think about how you present them in a way that's more inspirational and more desirable and you think about how you can use that like I say to reduce wastage or to reduce returns and present them in that way and particularly in the fashion industry where we've got to make a huge amount of transformation in the next decade if you work in marketing in that industry you are going to be right now shaping what people want to buy over the next 10 years and choosing what's desirable. And I think that there's a huge amount of opportunity there to make the stuff that our businesses all need to be doing, the stuff that is also commercially like really good for them. So I think mm-hmm. really think about the responsibility you've got as well. Yeah, I love that. I think the way you've broken that down almost feels like it's past, present, and future, right? You had like past, like analytics, look at analytics uh, with context. I think that's, I have a lot of people tell me like, obviously look at the data, but I think you are also saying, look at, try to really think about the parameters in which the data was collected and like question it, which I think is a really, really important thing for marketers to always keep in mind. And then present, right? Embrace the creatives. I think that's a really good thing that people can do now. And then looking forward, how do we, how do we take more responsibility for the things that we are, the taste that we're promoting. I think those are, it's a really nice structure to that. I don't know if it was intentional, but yeah, really, really like that, Hannah. Thank you for sharing those insights. I mean, having ended kind of looking forward a little bit, can you give us a taste of, you know, five years from now, what you think the future of marketing looks like for apparel brands? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I'm always wrong whenever anyone asks me to predict what's going to be happening in five years. But like really thinking about like what 
our identities are digitally and sort of fashion particularly is really tied up in our identity how that comes to life I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like but I do think so much more of fashion is going to be digital going forward and I think we're probably again at the point where we're probably about to go into a big trough of everyone being like this is like we're all quite hyped now and it's going to be rubbish Mm -hmm. for a bit but you know at some point that's going to come out and it is going to be really exciting and there's lots of really exciting proof of concepts there's really interesting stuff coming out of the London College of Fashion and the Institute of Digital Fashion and stuff like that which I think you know I'm really excited about and then I think you know hopefully actually lots of other things in fashion marketing might be quite different in five years time we might be better at promoting you know we might have made some different things desirable we might have really nailed how we make circularity within the industry something that you know we can market and talk to and engage consumers in I also think we sort of talked at the beginning about the fact that digital is quite volatile now and I think sort of the big duopoly has sort of matured so I think we're probably also moving a bit back into a more physical realm in fashion which I also think is quite interesting and and sort of also to the point where those two things are like not particularly useful distinctions anymore Mm -hmm. so actually when I think about the business I work with now like it's all the omni-channel retailers who are doing things that work digitally and physically you know, you talked about it, like making what their store experience is like, bringing some of that in a way that makes sense to their digital channels and, Mm -hmm. you know, managing their stock across stores and their warehouse, you know, like some quite basic stuff and then some really exciting stuff. So I think we're going to start to lose this idea of like digital being separate. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think the experiential retail and the whole drive towards like bringing people back in stores and the ways that you do that in kind of new and exciting ways is obviously a huge focus, uh, I think, for, for I mean, for all retail, but for fashion in particular. But you're absolutely right. It's happening in a way that is blending the digital and the physical, right? Like, how do you then activate everyone that comes through the store on digital channels? Or how do you like use your digital channels to like drive foot traffic through your stores? And like the the blending of all of those things and like it it requires a much more holistic strategy rather than just thinking of these as two completely separate realms and maybe that your point about the metaverse is the ultimate blending of those spaces right it's it's the physical somewhat and the digital i'm curious you know as a final note do you think fashion i think when i think about the way that people are already behaving in the metaverse and this idea of like mods and avatars and people designing themselves in virtual spaces I think people are willing to take more bets and be more creative mm-hmm. with how they design themselves. I don't think everyone is wearing blue jeans and a white tee in the in the right. metaverse. Um, so maybe there is also some exciting opportunities there for, for the fashion world uh, because of the way that people want to maybe embrace their true nature that they don't necessarily feel comfortable doing in the physical world. Maybe that's an opportunity for fashion as well. <laughs> You're right. That's actually such a good point. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, I think that's great. <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you, Hannah. I think this is a really interesting episode. We got to go into like a deep dive on a lot of things, fashion, apparel, like algorithms. We're not experts in algorithms, but I think we have plenty of interesting things to say about them, you in particular. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, If people want to follow your journey, uh, where should they go? So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Hannah Craig. You can also find Pivotal Consulting on LinkedIn and you can find us on Instagram 
at this dot is dot pivotal. I mean, I should have a website, but we haven't launched it yet. Well, you only launched four weeks ago, so that's fair. <laughs> Again, thank you, Hannah. To all our listeners, uh, go go check out Hannah Craig and the things that she's up to. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about Spectrum and what we do, subscribe to the podcast. I'd love to get your feedback on this episode, on any episodes of the podcast as well. Uh, feel free to reach out to me directly uh, in DMs on LinkedIn or go to spectrum.io to kind of look at what we're doing in conversational marketing. And thank you so much for listening, everyone. And Hannah, again, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you.